Hey everybody, welcome back to Improv Town. As always, I am your host and ambassador, Clayton Mashad, and this episode's interview is with the legendary Joe Bill. Joe Bill is one of the co-founders of the Annoyance Theater and is one half of the award-winning improv duo Basprov, along with Mark Sutton. Joe talks about studying with Del Close and how Annoyance Theater got started. We also talk about the various schools of improv thought and his feelings on Chicago versus Johnstonian improv plus lots of other great improv tips. And at the end, I'm going to include some notes from the workshop that I got to take with Joe. As always, if you like this podcast, rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. Enjoy. I want to start off by talking about how you got into improv, how you ended up studying with Dell, how you got involved with Annoyance, just that whole... Okay. Well, grand story. So I'll try to skip along some headlines, and then if you want more details about anything, you can ask. Yeah, go into it. How about that? You can go into as much detail as you want. Sure. I uh, So I learned my first improv games in high school in 1977, probably when your parents were kids. <laughs> uh, and uh, at that point, just like learned some basic improv games, and then we got to invent our own little uh, improvisations. We, we would like improvise little like one-minute silent scenes or... Uh, we called them mimes, but I don't think Indiana is the place where you really learn mime skills. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> and it appealed to me immediately because I like the idea of not having to conform to a script. Yeah. And so my personality, uh, I'm the oldest of five kids and I'm, uh, you know, most old oldest kids or like two thirds of oldest kids, they say, are kind of parent pleasers and they want their parents to be proud and everything. And then the other third are kind of the rebels and this is all BS. I'm going to do stuff my own way. And that was me. (laughs) And so all through school, like I had lightly reoccurring feedback that I needed to respect authority and uh, that butted up against my distaste for people telling me what to do. So improv appealed to me because uh, the content was in our own hands. And I was in a, uh, uh, I played sports in high school, but I was also in theater. And in my high school, there was a lot of crossover between sports and theater. So we were kind of unique in that way. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> and then as I started uh, learning more about uh, improv, um, I was the high school kid my, in between my senior year of high school and college in a short form group that was made up of people that worked in television and radio, but they were mostly like the technicians or the sound people or the lighting people or the, uh, the people in the switcher room doing the edits and stuff. And so, you know, I was kind of like the kid they made fun of, but I was taller than everybody. (laughs) And, uh, then I went to Indiana university and my, right before my junior year, I saw a, notice for an improv group and I had really not done improv uh, other than the summers I would go back and play with this group in Indianapolis and I also did music stuff so like I I sang in all the different choirs and stuff in high school and then over the summer I also sang uh, like in this barbershop quartet group (laughs) (laughs) cool and but this so yeah there was a notice that came up and uh it was Mick Napier and Dave McNerland so (laughs) two of the other founders of what would become the annoyance had this notice up and I went to this audition and I think we just stood in a line and all I really remember about the audition was uh, Mick said to me you're a chicken 
And he said to Eric Waddell, you're a frog. And I just, I was a chicken that wanted frog legs. So I was trying to kill the frog and eat him. And we did that for about a minute. And then uh, that did it. So we got in the group. (laughs) Was this in Chicago? No, this is at Indiana University. Oh. Uh, And so we formed a group called Double Take. And um, of that group, there was 10 of us. We performed every week. We did sketch and improv uh, in a bar. And our whole goal was to do a show each week that was at least, uh, if not entirely new, like at least like 75% new material uh, sketch-wise. And then we kind of found the improv games that worked for us, but we always tried to do like a different show every week. Yeah. And of that 10, five or six of us then would be between 1985 and 1988 moved up to Chicago, and then we formed a group uh, that was called Metroform. And then Metroform would eventually become Annoyance, I think in like like 98 or 99, or maybe 98, 99. You'll find that as we go through our chat that I'm really unclear on a lot of dates. <laughs> <laughs> I always have been, but... So yeah, I'll give you relative dates and times. So yeah, and then I was the first one up from our group in college up to Chicago, and uh, I my senior year, there was a guy who I knew from high school who also went to Indiana University, and he told me about Del Close. And in, uh, in, uh, not in, in, high, uh, in college, um, and so our group in college had read Something Wonderful Right Away by Jeffrey Sweet, which was like the history of Second City. And we had read Keith's uh, Impro. And I think those were the only two books at that time. And this would have been like early 80s that we were, you know, kind of based in. But we were kind of more interested in the Second City stuff because like scenario-based improv played by college kids in a bar seemed a little more doable than trying to do like a big narrative just to keep the drinking patrons attention. So, um, but I remember like the status lessons from Impro that Keith talked about kind of came into the conversation or at least in the awareness, like when we were writing scenes and stuff, but you know, those were, we were, that group at Indiana was like very diverse. It was, you know, people from, I was kind of the token frat boy. And uh, Mark Sutton was in that group who he and Mick and I were kind of like, uh, I don't want to say like stand. I mean, Mick was always a genius from kind of the moment you met him, even though he didn't present as a genius always. <laughs> um, but Mark and I would go on to do Bass Prov. And Mark and I were the two guys that liked sports, and nobody else in the group cared about sports. But we were both telecom majors. And so that the makeup of these different sensibilities in this group would have us do these shows in college where you'd get frat guys, business school guys, Theater people, music people, fine arts people, townies would come to see our shows. And I think that that was something for me that that I really embraced. Um, I, I guess I should also mention my what would have been my sophomore year in college. I traveled with a group called Up With People. Do you know that at all? Uh, I think I've them? heard of it. So it's, 
uh, it's basically a group that it was spun out of kind of a Christian group and they, uh, they do, you know, music and they travel over. It would be like a semester in the States, a semester abroad. I did that when I was 19. And so at that point, I'd really not been out of Indiana that much. And there was people from like 24 different countries in my cast. And uh, we spent a semester in the States and then we played like the Dominican Republic. We went to Venezuela. We went to Mexico. And that was the thing where I really got a taste for how big and awesome and diverse the world was. And it was also a thing that was, you know, uh, ridiculed as being like cheesy. And uh, if you go back to some of the Super Bowl halftime shows, Up With People is there. And it's just like all these shiny, happy-faced people. <laughs> you know, uh, the Simpsons made fun of them on a couple of Simpsons show, And they called themselves Hooray for Everything. <laughs> and so if you're going to satire Up With People, I think that would be a, a, an apt satirical take on them. So that, that sensibility that life is bigger than Indiana went with me. And then when we got in this group in college and there was all this diversity and then coming up and starting the annoyance, that was, that's a theme that's been with me. Different people, different takes, different opinions, different life experiences and sharing that. So if I jump back to meeting Dell, now it's my senior year in college. My friend Charlie Hyatt said, you got to come up to Chicago and meet Dell. Okay, I think I might have gone there for spring break. And Dell at this time lived across from Second City on Well Street. And I had heard, you know, all the mystery and spookiness and whatever about him. This would have been a, like, I think, 84. You know, and I was like, well, what should we talk about? Or what, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, don't worry, I got a joint. That's, our, <laughs> that's our, our key in. So we'll smoke the joint. Don't say anything. Just let him talk. And then uh, just like go with the conversation as it unfolds. Okay, cool. Well, in my pocket, because he was doing like long form and group stuff and group mind stuff, I thought because I played basketball, um, I think basketball is, it's my favorite sport to use as a metaphor for improv. And because I had worked in this group in college, I thought, okay, I've got a foundation for why I'm interested in hit this group improv thing. And then I also, my fun fact for Dell was that my father played football for Notre Dame. And uh, that I was raised, you know, like by kind of a, a rigorous coach and uh, taught to be a good team player and, you know, all of these type of things. So we get to Dell's apartment and it's just this studio apartment that's all the walls are lined with bookcases. And then the apartment itself was like a bookcase maze <laughs> yeah. that led to a front part of the room by a window where there was just a mattress on the ground. And then there, I think there was two cats. And it was kind of, uh, it looked like a homeless person who loved, who hoarded books lived there. And we sat on Dell's mattress and we smoked a joint and, um, and it was really, really good pot. And at this point in my life, I was not really that big of a stoner or maybe this is when I was opening my eyes to, you know, smoking weed like a, a 22 year old. And, uh. And so Dell was talking and he was kind of, he was kind of uh, covering a lot of different things. And he said something, I don't remember what it was. It seemed to open the window about group play and team play and group mind. And I dropped my fun fact on him after saying, I played basketball and, you know, as a sport, I'm interested in blah, 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 blah. You know, my, uh, my dad played football for Notre Dame. And then like all of a sudden 
as I was saying that, the Dell and Charlie and even myself we got quiet because it was like it was like he had seen my agenda to try to impress him. And at this point he had the joint in his hand and he just froze and didn't look at me and he's looking straight forward and it's like a, there's this beat and then he hits the joint and he's really I taught John Belushi how to shoot up <laughs> and then passes me the joint and it was like getting hit in the head with a frying pan because I was high I felt completely exposed and then uh, in my head I'm like oh you dumbass like this is Oh, what are you trying to? And then now, now he's handing me the joint like your move, and I'm and I'm out of moves. <laughs> and I can't even tell you how that ended. I think we were there maybe another thirty minutes, and I was just my only thought was like, you know, I've never met anybody like this guy, and I need to study with him. This seems crazy because it was just such a contrast from my upbringing. So. Uh, went back to college and told people about meeting Dell that were in my group. Nobody really cared that much. We continued to um, to do shows. Uh, we we were in the finals of a campus comedy competition, and uh, we got to perform before Robert Klein performed at IU. And uh, my parents came down, and they had their little travel suitcase with booze in it and stuff. And they were staying at the Student Union Hotel where Robert Klein was. So Faye Soloway's mother, I think mother and father were there. And my mother and father were there. And my father, uh, Robert Klein comes walking in. My father says, Robert, can I buy you a scotch? <laughs> And he's like, uh, well, sure. You know, my, my son and uh, Miss Soloway here were in the, uh, in the campus competition. We loved it. And uh, we loved they you know, got to see a, a perform in the same stage as a legend such as yourself. So my father had the New Yorker thing covered with Robert Klein. And then Faith's mom had the, like, Jewish mother PR person covered. And so Robert Klein took to us immediately. And uh, my father said, don't drink any of the scotch. You stick to the vodka. So it became me and Faith, Robert Klein, my dad and Faith's mom, because both of our other parents kind of like retired. And we just sat and like got to hear Robert Klein tell stories about Second City and all of this stuff. And it was just like this easy flowing conversation. And Faith was from Chicago and we, we dated uh, we are in the improv group. We were the cast couple. And so that really solidified for me, and this would have been right at the end of our senior year in 85, this like, okay, I'm going to Chicago for sure. And um, so I arrived in Chicago at 85. I start studying at Second City. Uh, I think that was in July. And then I think I started at I.O. in August. Dell didn't remember meeting me. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> I was say, so that's a good thing, right? Yeah, and uh, and so back in those days, you would take eight weeks of Sharna, and Sharna would introduce you to Harold, and then that's when Dell was working with a group called Barons Barracudas, which was kind of his first. It was like the first super group, yeah. the first Dell centric, you know, intensive coach directed, uh, whatever by Dell, and so we watched them. And at this time, we were doing Harold's, 
so you study with Sharna for eight weeks. You study for Dell for eight weeks, and then you get put on a team. But then you continue continue to study with Dell, and so you'd get notes from Sharna. Maybe Dell would watch the shows. Maybe he wouldn't. And you know, if you had some weed, you could bribe him to watch your show. And <laughs> you know, he'd usually he'd, maybe he'd come in for the end of it. Yeah, well, interesting things explored, and let's smoke that joint. So that was really. You know, uh, from like 85 to 86, I was pretty much up there. The only one from our college group that was up there. And then I think it was 86, 87, uh, Mick and Faith and Dave and Eric and those, the rest of those people started filtering up. Was that kind of uh, upon your your recommendation or you think they would have ended up studying with Dell anyway? I think they would have ended up coming up there I mean the idea I think maybe of everybody I was the most interested in studying with Dell because he was just such a he was just such a drastic energy shift from like my jock upbringing it was he was so strikingly different and then I was and that's when and I had quit basketball my senior year to uh to be in I think it was Diary of Anne Frank and uh, that basketball team won the state championship <laughs> in Indiana. No big deal. High school state championship <laughs> in Indiana. But Diary of Anne Frank got nominated at the State Thespian Conference to perform as one of the best dramas in the state that year. And then I went to Broad Ripple High School and our sketch and improv group, the Off-Broad Ripple Company, was nominated <laughs> in the comedy category. And Diary of Anne Frank won the best drama, and Off-Broad Ripple Company won the best comedy. I was named the Indiana All-Star cast, and I was named the top actor in the state. <laughs> and, that was, and that was awesome, but at the time I didn't realize it was awesome because I was still hurting from not having a state championship. <laughs> and what that did for me was some, somehow in there... And when I quit playing basketball, then I started smoking a little more weed and experimenting with drugs a little bit. So Dell was kind of perfectly primed because he would talk about his time with Timothy Leary and experimenting with LSD and like all these crazy, you know, Andy Warhol parties and, and all of this shit was just so far outside of my, you know, Irish Catholic upbringing in Indiana that I'm like, uh, well, if I'm not going to go into the insurance industry like the rest of my family, then this is the route I got to take. <laughs> yeah. So when everybody came up, I think there were some uh, mixed studied at IO. I can't remember if Faith did or not. I, d I don't think Eric did. Mark Sutton went back to Tipton, Indiana. Maybe Dave McNerland did. But uh, maybe Mick and I were the only two that did, and I'm not sure about Faith. But the big idea was to come study at Second City. And over... I think even when I had moved up there first, the idea was present that some of us would probably go to Chicago. Cool. And then, then you guys studied, studied with Dell. We're doing stuff at I.O. for a while. And then... And then, so making some friends at I.O., especially in some making some friends at Second City. And I was still doing stand-up. And... Uh, then we did our first show. The very first show we did as Metroform was called Splatter Theater. Yeah. And so that was basically Mick wanted to do 
like a send-up of horror movies, but it would be structured kind of like a musical, only wherever there would be a song sung, there would be a bloody, gory death. So he and I met one weekend, and I always liked special effects, and he kind of liked special effects. So we, what I remember is us meeting one weekend and just trying to figure out special effects for different deaths. <laughs> so what are different ways you can kill people and have gore be on stage? And then rigging stuff, you know, rigging knives with bulbs and, you know, the idea of like having a gut bag on a character. So like a trash bag filled with like stuffed intestines and organs and fake stage blood. And then popping that and like presenting the organs and uh, putting a pumpkin on top of somebody's head and then like acting like you're cutting off the top of the pumpkin like a jack-o'-lantern and then like hacking somebody's brains out and then pulling their brains out, throwing it against the wall, cutting somebody's tongue out. So all of this crazy shit. And we we rigged it. Uh, we, we did like a lot of the rigs for this. And I believe in the process, we kind of started with Here's the different riggings. I was going to be the killer, and he was he was going to direct, and then he casted from people. So some of our original IU people were there that had moved up, and then some friends from IO and some friends from Second City. And this is kind of where, like, the genius of Mick, where casting started, because we met you know people like David Rozowski, who's an amazing improv teacher who lives out in L.A., um, Richard Label, who's like an amazing um, uh, a comedian and MC and magician. Susan Messing. All of these people that came in to take on these roles in Splatter Theater were just these big characters from crazy, diverse, little different walks of life, but everybody was so talented. And in Splatter Theater, the stage was painted all white, the furniture was white, uh, couch covered in a sheet, and everything was white when you started. And by the end of it, there's just blood and guts <laughs> everywhere. And the show became so popular that we had to do two shows a night. So we had two changes of costume. We're all just covered in blood and guts. And then for a while, the only thing that there was only one mop sink with only cold water. And everybody in the cast would be crowded around this mop sink cleaning off and getting like the new change of clothes on. We'd clean the stage. <laughs> I think we had like maybe a, an hour or 90 minute turnaround and then we'd do the whole thing all over again. <laughs> and so there's famous stories about people coming into that theater after we left and like prying up the stage and there's just all this like years of stage, I don't know, two years, three years maybe of uh, stage blood just caked, <laughs> caked in there. Um, and that at the time was in a place called Cross Currents and uh, we were on the top floor and the bottom floor was where IO was at the time so there was really always kind of a close association with um, Annoyance and IO uh, and again I can't remember I'm pretty sure other people took classes at Second City but I can't I can't really say with certainty you know what the hell happened <laughs> but we became Annoyance I think we opened co-ed prison sluts as uh, Metroform as well. Uh, and then, uh, oh, we were subleasing the, we were subleasing cross currents with Sharna, uh, at, uh, yeah, we were, we we're paying the owner of cross currents, but the owner was using our rent money 
to run a cocaine ring. <laughs> so we all showed up one day and all of our shit was out on the yeah. street. Yeah, yeah, I've heard and, the story. Uh, and there was like a group of like three kind of punk rock you know, mohawk spike kids, spiked haired kids, and they all had pet rats and they'd watch our show and like we loved them. But they're the ones that were guarding our desk and our our money and all that stuff. And yeah, we packed all our shit into storage and then we all went and went to a restaurant and drank screwdrivers and cried. And then at the end of that, you know, Mick kind of gave a rally cry that in one month we're going to raise $10,000 and find a new space. Yeah, we are. We love you guys. <laughs> and we did. And that's yeah. when the annoyance started. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. It was very crazy. So, I can't remember. Again, I can't remember the year, but the... Uh, I was also doing... I did stand-up till like about 92 or 93, and I was back and forth in and out of annoyance stuff doing stand-up. Somewhere around there was the first time Sharna asked me to... Or suggested that I move on from IO. <laughs> uh, and really, like, I had to do stand-up for a while because I had to get I had to get my own shit out. I think there was stuff... For a while, I think I deluded myself into thinking that I could either go into therapy and talk about all of my Catholic upbringing baggage, or I could write it into a stand-up act and get paid to tell yeah. an audience <laughs> and make them laugh about all this, you know, this crap I went through. Uh, and the your minor scars of an upbringing like that, and during that time is like really when the annoyance just it grew and exploded. Mark moved back up from Indiana, and so I think in our first original annoyance space uh, on Broadway, I think we were there till like ninety three or two, three or four, and then that's really when this influx of amazing people in Chicago who you can see on TV and run comedy yeah. and stuff now, they all came in over the span of these next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely like a, definitely a golden golden time in improv. Yeah. It was crazy. And then, um, yeah, then in the mid-90s we moved, uh, we moved the annoyance to like kind of the, we call it the big theater on Clark Street, and I.O. was just down the street. We were north of Wrigley Field, they were south of Wrigley Field, Dell was still alive. I came back to I.O., I, I, after stand-up I came back to I.O. for a little bit, like for maybe a year or two, and then that was the second time Sharna invited me to go do other stuff. And I think because the annoyance had gotten popular, we had done the real live Brady Bunch, we had gotten all this, you know, this crazy uh, cutting-edge shock theater, which was really just a group of super diverse people who had all had, you know, the same or worse trauma that I did. And, uh, you know, the whole thing, the only rules to be in the annoyance was like, be a nice person and, and put your shit on stage. And then IO was in its kind of glory day of like the, the generation behind me all were showing up and those that's people like um like Craig Kikowski and Bob Dassey and Rick Tellerico, Horatio Sands, Ali Farinakin, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, uh Rachel Dratch. Um all of those kind of like started coming in the nineties and I really never got back to IO to like uh ninety nine or two thousand. Two thousand was the year the the big theater at Annoyance closed. But by that time we had sort of brought the theaters back together. 
you know, for a while it was like, if you're second city or second city, if you're IO, you're IO, if you're annoyance, you're annoyance. And then we did a show. It was a brainchild of a brilliant writer and uh, comedy guy named Ed Furman called donkey improv. And we had, uh, we played on a Monday night and we had people from IO annoyance and second city all do a theater in the round show. And in the middle of the stage was a donkey. The first year was a donkey, a pot pig and a wild Turkey. <laughs> and then there's chairs with people from, you know, maybe a cast of like 18 to 20 people. Uh, and the only rule was, uh, it was like lights up, lights down, or like review style long form format. So the lights would go up and people would be on stage. And, and the only rule was in every scene, there had to be at least one animal. And we did that two years and uh, I think the second year is when Sharna came and did the show. And in the in the two years of Donkey Improv, the only person to get on top of the donkey and ride it was Sharna Halpern. <laughs> uh, and in that scene, uh, there's some debate about this, but as I remember it, uh, in that scene was like David Pasquese, Scott Adsit, and Scott Ullman, I believe. And they made her the Virgin Mary. <laughs> um, but for some reason, it was it was around that time, around like maybe 95, 96 were the two years where the three theaters started coming together. And then different, as people from IO and uh, Annoyance started kind of growing up after we got validity because of the Brady Bunch boom. But I mean, there were so many great people that everybody started cross pollinating, performing at all the different theaters. And I think for all of us, that was a time we realized, you know, the thing about improv is like, we can all play with different voices, with different agendas. We can aim to shock. We can aim to offend. We can aim to do a herald. We can aim to do uh, politically motivated uh, satire uh, with our improv. But, you know, this just continued the running theme for me of like diversity, different voices, different perspectives, all having value. And then those last years of annoyance at the big theater from like 96 to 2000 were just like glory days. We had a, a midnight show called The Screw Puppies. And it was just basically, um, I was the director of that. And my job was to get two cases of beer, put it backstage. We would take a suggestion forget the suggestion by the third scene, you know, promise that a pig would be fucked and uh, we'd all just drink backstage while putting this party on. And it sold out every Saturday midnight. And it was, that's also about the time in the early nineties, early to mid nineties where festivals started. And so we would tour and play festivals and, you know, we were not everybody's cup of tea, <laughs> but uh, if they had us in a late spot, you know, we were doing, we were doing rude and vulgar humor, but it was always, you know, one of the, I think Mick doesn't get enough credit. Like Mick deserves as much credit as Dell or Keith Johnstone because he was the master of context and protecting whatever you wanted to put on stage. There's a way to protect it and you have to give it scenic integrity. You have to essentially give it story and uh, integrity, even if it's a short scene. And, um, and, and that was like those glory days were just, uh, we're just amazing. So I've jumped all over the place. So you can redirect me to where you want to go. Well, yeah. So one question, but I wanted to ask about, I don't know, I also don't know if this is too like, broad of a question. Sure. What you think are like the general, general schools of, of improv thought mm -hmm. and whether you think of it more in terms of, of what they teach or, or what their objectives are. 
I think in the States, I, I, I just listened to Stacey Halal on Improv Yak, on Carla Kakowski's podcast. Stacey Halal is the owner and artistic director of Curious Comedy Theater in Portland. And she did a really good job of describing, on one level, the four different schools that were in Chicago. So it's, and what the focus is. So... I think she said uh, at Second City, the focus was on the improv was focused on the sketch and social satire on IO. The focus is on your scene partner at annoyance. Uh, the focus is on take care of yourself in order to take care of your scene partner, but take care of yourself first. And at comedy sports, the focus is uh, take care of the audience, which then I later came to learn as I learned the history of the comedy sports. I had not really heard of theater sports in Keith so much in more detail than what I had learned it in college or like when I studied at Second City, status and narrative was like, if it, was, if it wasn't two weeks, it might have been like, uh, here's Keith Johnstone, here's Impro, here's status, let's take a break. Now let's focus on narrative and then on we went. But, but those four focus... Tend to the satire, tend to the political situation, tend to the social relevancy. Take care of your scene partner, take care of yourself, or take care of the audience. Like, I think that might be the, uh, and, and I guess the second city would be like, uh, tend to the material. Maybe those might be a good place to kind of start the schools of thought. Yeah, that's a, that's a cool way of thinking about it. And part of me uh, stopping stand up part of it was then discovering oh I really do need to go to therapy because there was some other stuff in my life that was just kind of fucked up and I needed to just deal with some stuff and in doing that and then like looking into my family history and family DNA and all the weird cast of characters that was in my family I started I studied I minored in psychology in school but I really became interested in, started to become interested in like neuroscience as it was starting to evolve, like late 90s going into 2000. And so even to this day now, roughly 20 years later, I just as a hobby read up on and study the neuroscience of self-consciousness and how it helps or hinders us in different approaches to improvisation. But also, given these different focuses, how is our brain working when we're, on when we're focusing on the content? How is our brain working when we're focused on ourself? How is our brain working when I'm focused on you? How is my brain working when I'm focused on the audience? And what's the nature of all of that in terms of the chemistry and the electronics that's happening between your ears? So now I've just revealed the kind of gigantic nerd that I am. No, I mean, that's, that's, that's awesome. Because I always, I don't know, something I think a lot about, like how you classify, the best way to kind of classify differences or, you know, cl whether it's schools of improv thought or types of scenes or... So it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's like, like I really think I think it's a really great conversation. I think it's a, it's a conversation I would encourage all improvisers who want to do this with their life to have. And I, I would encourage people not to settle for one definitive definition because I think there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. And I think, there's, I think we should look at it in as many different ways as possible because in the end, that's the definition of creativity. Right. You know, creativity is the ability to look at the same thing through different lenses. 
So why would we not apply creativity to the way that we view ourselves? And for me, if you're an improviser anywhere in the world, no matter what kind of improv you're doing, we are all part of the same tribe. We just might have different rituals and dances that we use to celebrate our tribe membership. So that's a broad way to look at it. Yeah, I think that's... Yeah, I think that's a cool additional way to think about that you can frame it is who are you serving, whether it's society, society in the you know, the satire yeah. way, yourself, your scene partner, or the audience. And if you think about it, if you're going to focus or study or just embrace any of the approaches, you're really, if you're doing it well, you're, you're, you're tending to all of them. It's just what's your, what's your pathway in so um you know i've in the last 10 years i've taken to uh like one of the turning moments in my life is when i started improvising with patty styles because patty you know uh, i tell people from chicago like patty is to keith like susan messing is in a way to mcnapier and if your listeners don't know what that means then read up on your history <laughs> Um, but what that means is like Patty and Susan Messing are both two very brilliant improvisers who who love and own and live the way to improvise of these two, you know, great thinkers, directors, uh, uh, improv minds, if you will. Um, and Patty and I, when YesAnd.com first started, Patty and I would like correspond a little bit. And it was nothing was ever contentious. We would have, you know, like little chats and little chat rooms about different topics. Um, you know, and I always wondered, like, I wonder if she's related to Ryan Styles, <laughs> but like would never ask her. Um, and so the day finally came where we were both in Austin, Texas. It might have been at the Out of Bounds Festival, and uh, and some of our talk online was about when I would go into Johnstone schooled places I would have to spend 15 or 20 minutes kind of qualifying uh, like the the Del Close and McNapier approach to improvisation which is you know you're focused on your scene partner you're focused on yourself and so either way an annoyance would say the best way for me to take care of you is to take care of myself first and so and even those of us that were at the annoyance in the beginning have different ways to explain what that is for me it's psychology and emotion but it's not it's not the way it's a way to look at that um uh but when uh so patty and i would and patty was like yeah when i go in and sometimes i teach you know people that are all just american uh, uh not exposed to keith uh i have to qualify myself and qualify story and qualify the value of narrative because as people tend to be between 18 and 25 or even 30 years old, we find that one thing that resonates with us and, you know, God damn yeah. it, this must be it. You know, here's the truth. Here's the truth right here. And that's why so many young people get sucked into cults. <laughs> <laughs> but when we first met, I don't remember which one of us arrived there first, but, you know, Pat and Patty and I have told this story. It was... Uh, for I don't know. For today, I'll tell it. I was there first, but I don't know. Maybe Patty was, but it was that groups of people going. Oh, you know, there's that Johnstone chick. Oh, does Joe Bill know she's here? Or you know, it's like, oh, Patty. Oh, there's that Del Close guy. There's that annoyance theater guy. Oh, Patty. Oh, oh, does Patty know? Oh, what's gonna happen? And and it's like this weird. 
I don't think either one of us was really that aware of it or cared. We were kind of just looking forward to having a beer and finally meeting. But this, we later found out, you know, this, all this, there was like this, uh, different pockets of people like inhaling and holding their breath as we approached each other. And I think it was like, hi, hi, hug, hug, want a beer, love one. And then we just went and sat down and we probably had like eight or 10 beers and just sat on the floor drinking and talking while everybody was like waiting for a nuclear explosion to happen. (laughs) And that was, and it was in that conversation that we decided maybe it would make both of our lives easier if we just play together someday and just see if we can break improv. Or impro, you know, <laughs> and, or yeah. decide if should there be a V or not on it. Um, but really, it was just like let's play together, and it took about two years uh, till we finally played in uh, Würzburg, Germany. Um, and now this would be, I think, eight years ago. And we, I would try to raise the idea of talking about what we might do. And then she'd kind of hint at like, oh yeah, maybe the next time we'll talk a little bit more about what we might do. But it was always just us having conversations or telling Dell stories or telling Keith stories. And we just avoided it. Um, because I think we both knew that really if we're going to validate our schools, if that's what we're doing beyond just the idea of playing together, then the idea is like, let's show up, walk on stage and do what we do and see if it works. Right. Yeah. Because all the other planning shit, like you don't do that, yeah. you know. That's just, that's just like qualifying it if you're like, oh, well, how yeah. can we? I mean, if you and I were going to walk on stage tonight, you know, I would say uh, you want to have a beer half an hour before the show and just uh, float some ideas out. And then like five minutes or three minutes before we walk on, one of us says, how about this? And the other one goes, yep. And then we go. That's essentially what happened. And it was, uh, I knew it was going to be something cool and something interesting and whatever. I don't know that I was at ease until... We had our tech time in our theater, and so we were sitting on the stage, and I think Patty was showing me some of Keith's comic books or something, and we were kind of trading stories, and we are still kind of avoiding talking about what we were going to do, and a freaking TV film crew walks in because like we're one of the headliners of this festival so they want to catch us in our process because this <laughs> you know these two worlds are colliding and uh <laughs> They walk in and then the presenter or the interviewer comes walking towards us and we just, we never, we just shifted into an improv game called Patty and Joe are going to be on TV. Yeah. And then we became a little more presentational. Hi, it's so nice to meet you. Welcome into our process. And it, I mean, it was like that. It was just boom. It just happened. And this woman interviewed us. We just want to see you work. And actually, we're working right now. We're in a little downtime. We've we've already um, worked out some things on stage and just kind of warmed up and felt the space and said a bunch of artsy-fartsy <laughs> shit that means nothing. And the presenter, oh, good, good. And so I think Patty said, you know, we're kind of in a reflection time right now. So you've really caught us at a great time. And we're open to any questions that you might have. And it just... It just happened. And I, I mean, this woman was there for 15, 20, 25 minutes. They, she got her interview. Um, she got pictures of us uh, or, or, you know, clips of us like interacting with each other and <laughs> laughing and all this stuff. And then they left and we just went back to Patty and Joe. And, be, you know, it was 10 minutes before that show where I suggested is like, what if we just get somebody's. Um, based on the idea of soundtrack, which is uh, a buddy of mine, Kurt Broneler did. He was in. Uh, he's a comedian now. He's awesome, and uh, 
and was at UCB in the pit in New York. And it's just like, uh, get somebody's iPhone and then just do a soundtrack for a show by just playing random songs. And those are the outs of scenes into the next scene. Does that make sense? Yeah. But I said, what if we just get somebody's phone, have them give us a song that means something to them. And the title of the song is the title of our play. We decided our show would be called Our Play. Patty came up with that because it's freaking genius. Yeah, great. And then we, that would be the title of our show, and then that song would be the intro music, and that's how we would start. And lo and behold, we do that. We play the song. I, I don't remember if she went first or I, I don't, hell, I don't, I, maybe we like circled around each other or something on stage, and it was kind of like everything was the truth of what's here. And everything was like we knew, the audience knew, that we knew that they knew that we knew that we were there together. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we just, it's, it's, I just remember us circling each other. I, I think that's the first thing we did. And, um, and 52 minutes later, the lights go out and it was a perfect narrative and it was a perfect two person herald. <laughs> and, yeah. and people's minds were blown and we took it and it, and in, I mean we're playing scenes and we're crying and the audience is crying and then we're doing you know we have some wacky fun stuff and we have some dark pointed stuff and some like it had everything so was it one of those like whatever school you were from you would think that they were doing your thing like if you were if yeah. you, you'd be like, oh they're they're doing a herald and if you were Johnstonian they'd be like Oh, they're doing narrative. I think so. I mean, all Patty and I were doing was just listening to each other and just responding. And then we were we were improvising the way that Patty Styles would improvise and Joe Bill would improvise. And it was um, what we later looked back on was we we have different words for different things. We see. You know, when a signal happens or when a tilt happens, you know, a tilt is a turn, you know, or a tilt is an emotional shift or um, my uh, my emotional evolution is my my internal narrative. You know what? It's like it's all the same shit. Yeah. Um, And then, you know, stylistically, like if you looked at us as actors, we tend to behave in a way where you could see maybe a little stylistic difference in the way we behave like you would see the difference between a musical theater actor and a, like a dramatic actor um, but it's still me and Patty but it's it's just listening, responding caring, recognizing being curious taking care of your partner you know, making eye contact feeding them, feeding them what you think they need, taking from them what you think you need and it's and the story happened and and it started in three different places like a herald and it all just and it all just came together and then we took a break and we did like four or five Johnstone games and that Patty ran and she had different people come up and I'm like and I had heard of some of them and I had no idea about the others and it was just it was a night that you know I think everybody's mind was blown the place was like over you know in Germany there was too many people and you know <laughs> Germans like their rules but. Uh, it, it was like one of the most memorable nights of my life. And then to your first question, the initial question that sparked this 15-minute monologue, um, what's the difference in the schools? One thing I think we realized was that Keith was a Keith's a playwright and a director, and Dell was an actor and a director. And so... And Keith is really from the school of take care of the audience. Yeah. And of course he would want that because he's a director and a playwright. 
And why would he have a trust in actors to be a director and a playwright when he's a director and a playwright? Mm. And Dell was an actor and a director. Uh, and of course, uh, he would have us and, and mix a director and an actor. Um, so of course, we would learn we would learn these things to equip ourselves as an actor to discover what the story, what the pieces that we're in. So we've come to say, when you're looking at narrative, you're really working from the outside in. And when you're working from character and discovery in the moment, you're working from the inside out. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so the inside is, am I taking care of me? Am I taking care of you? And then the outside is, are we taking care of the story and the material? Are we taking care of the audience? And at the end of the day, when each quote unquote school or approach or focus on improv falls flat, it's because it's missing the element of the other. When narrative falls flat, it's they can tell a perfect story, but we don't care about the characters. When when organic or herald or anything falls flat, you have great characters, but what the hell's what there's a bunch of monkeys jumping around who are funny, but what did we just see? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. That's another it's a super cool way to think about Think about those differences, because yeah, I think that ties into what you were you know, obviously what you were saying about the about the who you're taking care of, and so you you need to do all kind of four of those things, whether it's you know taking care of yourself, your scene partner, the audience, and then maybe the art, if that's if that's the other other way that you want to describe it. And it's kind of just a matter of what order those four those four responsibilities are. Yeah, and I think it's really you just start. Something has to happen first. And so, you know, Second cities that you learn, get out the who, the what, and the where. Why? Because we're improvising so we can turn it into a sketch later. Um, UCB is play the game of the scene. Play the pattern. When the pattern turns, that's the game. And if this is true, what else is true? That's, but you have to start. If we're doing a narrative, you have to start. And, and 30 seconds in, whose story is this? You know, but you have to start and nobody, I don't think anybody's thinking about shit except how will I start? And I can start by looking at you. I can start by, by responding. I can start by not talking. I can start by declaring. I can start by doing object work or space work. It's just, you start and then what will you do? And now it's just a series of moments. And then for me to help articulate how to bring these the commonality of these worlds again how is your brain working when it's tending to story yeah that's your engineer how's your brain working when you're tending to who what where that's your engineer how does your brain work when i'm tending to me that's for me it's psychology and emotion that is who am i that is receiving you right now am i a neutral improviser i might be and am I just responding to your words or is there something more in me that's receiving not just your words, but how you're saying your words to me? That's that's take care of myself in order to take care of you. My version. If I'm taking care of you is, am I a blank slate until I see you initiate or hear you initiate yeah. something? And now how can I yes and that? Right. Yeah. Kind of like Miles Strauss position. Yeah. Position play. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And. And then it's like, who are you and how does your brain work? Are you a relational, emotional, emotion-based person? Are you a task-focused person that wants to you know, get the job done? Uh, are you a goal person who is looking forward right now? Or are you 
an in the moment person that is in empathy and in process in this moment, tending to what is the truth that's here. And what you'll find is in every moment, and this is just like Meisner and acting stuff, in every moment, we're either moving uh, closer into agreement or uh, into greater conflict. Um, And we're either engaging in conversation that's circumstantial about stuff outside of us or conversation that's relational, stuff that's in me, stuff that's in you, stuff that's between us. And so the stu- uh, when we start talking about building a story, the part of our brain that tends to and is aware of the stuff that's in me, in you, between us, energy-wise, intuitively, psychologically, emotionally, it gets compromised in being aware of that stuff because we're, we're in engineer brain. And it's not that all engineers are emotionless pits, but there's a generalization about engineers being task focused people with emotional repression so that they can do a six Sigma drawing about what's going to give us the best outcome of this goal story. Uh, and then there's salespeople who are like relational and blah, 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 blah. But they, they forget to make the sale because it's, how are you doing? And nice car. And, yeah, 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 you right. know, what about your dog? So one thing I was wondering, I wanted to get your opinion on, I guess it's kind of a two part question. Uh, depending on whether you agree with the first the first statement. All right, let's test the premise. So it seems like it seems like uh, if, if you're comparing if you compare uh, Closian improv to Johnstonian improv, that uh, that the Del Close has become there's been lots much more schisms or it's gone in gone in a lot more directions than mm-hmm. than Johnstonian, which is pretty unified. Which mm-hmm. so I guess the follow up question was like, do you think that that's just because Keith Johnstone is still alive, so the, the <laughs> patriarch of the form can it's still there, here. There's still there's still a person who can say no. This is this is my intention. Whereas now, because I've I've talked to so many people that have well not so many but talked to lots of people who have studied with Dell, and so many of them have totally different styles or theories about improv, even though they all learned under the same person. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question, and I think, I think there is something to the premise that Dell died 19 years ago and Keith is still alive, and so maybe there's less, you know, schisms or uh, facets of the diamonds that have been chiseled off. Um, I also think, like, when somebody's a new thinker, you know, or somebody is the prophet they're really ground zero of the pure thinking of the thought. Yeah. Um, And it's always the disciples that fuck everything up. (laughs) Um, The, the initial intention, the initial taste, um, uh, the initial goal, the initial why of the people that do what they do. And I still default to Mick on this, which is the state of improv hasn't changed at all. This is my Mick will say this if anybody they'll he'll get asked the question invariably. How have you seen improv change over the last twenty five years? He goes, it hasn't changed. People get on stage and they make shit up. <laughs> so there's that. So how do you how are you going to make sh- shit up? I think so. On the one hand, Dell did not look at his stuff as a fixed moment in time and this is how it will always be Dell always said there will be an evolution that will evolve with society with people with uh, I don't know if he said technology 
but he would talk about how the industrial revolution changed things. The advent of the printing press changed the world. And he, on, you know, one of the things that he said was um, a group of improvisers who get a suggestion from an audience through group mind and taking, taking care of each other through playing with heart and knowing that anything they do had the potential to be an exploration of the human condition eventually the time will come where most improv that's created in that way will be as good as anything you could see off Broadway. And I think, uh, and I also wonder, and Dell never taught Harold in Chicago, which is something people don't know. Sharna taught Harold and then Dell taught, well, what else can we do? Harold was something that was, that Dell did with the committee and he, he experimented with like out in San Francisco and a little bit Seattle and, uh, and LA and maybe St. Louis too. But you know, what I've heard is that it was one of many different formats that, you know, a group of people who were, you know, tripping balls and doing, you know, uh, making stuff up. It was one of the things that it was one of the approaches that they did you know, and the rumor was is that the that Harold was named by the piano player of that group. Let's call it Harold. Oh, this sounds great. You know, a bunch of people tripping. Harold's awesome. <laughs> um, and to me, that's less important than when uh, when Sharna started with David Shepard, and David Shepard, for his own reasons, kind of went away. David Shepard was on the same page as Keith. Really, David Shepard was around at the beginning of Second City, and he and uh, Paul Sills would have people improvise scenarios like Nichols and May and all of them. You know, here's a scenario and I'll play the scenario. But then, so Shepard kind of got out of that and he was interested in like, uh, how can you, uh, the thinking of the time was like improvisation is just a, is just a vehicle to create material. Um, and Paul Sills was adamant improvisation should never be a thing you would charge an audience for just to watch improvisation. And Dell's Dell's point was no, yes, it will. Back to the original point, we can create something as good as what could be on Broadway. So with Keith, the interesting thing is, is when that group in Australia decided that they needed to trademark theater sports, because they had been doing theater sports for 15 or 20 years. And then some kids across town started doing a thing called theater sports. And it was their version of theater sports. Well, surprise, surprise, the old fuckers go across town, see the young kids doing theater sports. And this is not the way you do it. Yeah. So they felt threatened by that. And, um, you know, uh, corresponded with Keith. And as I and I got to meet Keith. Uh, Patty uh, arranged a meeting for Keith and I and we had scones and tea and coffee and it was lovely and he told me stories about the times that he and Dell had met but you know and confirmed they had come to him but he didn't see much reason for it he didn't see much reason to trademark but they kind of like moved him along with this idea of you need to you, you should be able to make money you should be able to protect the content and if and Keith if you want to protect the audience then we need to codify what this approach is uh, and I don't know what the other details of the conversation were, but my how what I suspect or how it hit me was that Keith begrudgingly agreed. 
And so now the Aussies down in Sydney, this is theater sports. And if you're not doing it this way, then you're not doing theater sports. And if you want to do theater sports in this way, now you have to uh, adhere to and pay admission to blah, 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 and poof. And, uh, and again, I don't care about all the, all the ongoing things of the ITI. And there's so many people in that group that I love and they're trying to protect that. But from my point of view, I completely get that. I can, I get the human instinct to protect something that is copyrightable or, uh, whatever. Uh, I get that to monetize that. I get that. But I also wonder if that's why Keith has no interest in seeing theater sports anymore. It's if, if the codification, if the legal, here's exactly what it is. Uh, if this is really what it is, I wonder if there's a correlation between that tightening of the laws and rest, uh, and restricting what this thing is, even though there's freedom allowed within that. I wonder if the consequence of that is the performers over time are affected by that demand that if you're doing it, it must be this way. It must be done this way. You must, you have to answer to these people, uh, and so people are less inspired to feel the initial freedom that Keith imagined being in theater sports. And why would they not default to more gimmick stuff, more game stuff, stuff that's more surefire to hit than not? Uh, why would they? Why would they take the risk of doing something that might fall flat? Uh, uh, when that really involves take care of me and, and I take care of myself to take care of you. Like that's a pretty self-indulgent point of view because that's two different things that haven't even talked about the audience yet. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. And it's, um, you know, and Mick, Mick's had put forth the audience's enjoyment of our show will be a consequence of our focus on ourselves and our skill in taking care of each other. So we're not trying to please you. We are trusting that you will be pleased by the way we do what we do. Yeah. Yeah. That's super cool, especially if you think about it, if you think about it in the progression of I take care of me in order to take care of you, mm -hmm. in order to take care of the audience. That's it. In order to take care of society by providing like And that's it. And really, you're talking about for for improv, I get back to this whole, you know, I love the idea of binaries and then like knowing there's gray area outside, but really on any given moment, we're serving the laugh or we're serving the truth. Like, like what's the funny thing here and what's the truth here? And for me, truth means what's the emotional, psychological truth? What's, what's the true acknowledgement and integrity of who we are right now in this moment? And a laugh may come, and it will because we're humans and we're self-important idiots. The laugh is going to come. But, you know, we have the audacity to believe. I'll put it this way. <laughs> when an audience is watching a scenic show, um, and an audience is watching a scene that's not a game, even though you can argue there's a game in, every, there's a game in everything. 
the the tension for the audience, the tension we're creating for them, because all theater creates tension and breaks tension. That's laughter happens as a result of tension being broken. An audience emotional reaction happens as a result of tension being broken. So the tension for the audience that they're sitting in, if they're watching you and I do a scene where we're pursuing what's true right now is, do I believe you? And do I continue to believe you even when you surprise me? Like it's, we all know we're sitting in a theater. We all know what's happening isn't real yet. We are not showing them any indication that these two characters have any acknowledgement that this isn't real. Our characters are in this moment and that, oh my God, how self-consumed and narcissistic is that? That's why like scenic sucks when it's bad. But if you're looking at game and narrative is a game that has seen within it, guess what? Just like Harold, if you're trying to build a story, the tension for the audience is, will you build a story? And for additional laughter or enchantment or emotion, will you surprise me in the way you build the story? Just like short form games are, will you, will you play the game you just described? And for bonus laughter, will you do it in a way that surprises me? Yeah. And the reason that scene is different is the audience won't believe you if you don't believe you. And that's why in my mind, taking care of myself first means I need to believe that I am this and I am this is circumstantial. And that's why I teach I need to believe that how I feel and how I receive you is going to lead me to the truth of whatever we're here that we've just stepped into. Yeah, that's cool. I like that, uh, that way of thinking about it. And in some ways, uh, you know, let's be real. Like the, every approach comes with risk. Um, but when we get back to, you know, these different ways, you know, the unified or there's less splintering or less takes in the Johnstone world there are in the in the close world it's uh i think it's also i think it's also worth asking uh is there is there less split in the commercial world in the commercial approach than there is uh in the artistic approach if if you're approaching this as an artistic proposition and I kind of like the idea that improv is an art medium like paint. Just because you make a painting doesn't make yeah. it art. But if if we are pursuing the art of presence, the art of honest presence and being here, of course that would yield more different takes and more different curiosities about how to present that than a commercial approach to, here's what we do, here's how this is called, here's how this takes care of the audience. Here's what it is. That's why Whose Line Is It Anyway looks the same every show, but you'll watch it every time because it's it's brilliant. They've got it figured out. Um, and not and theater sports companies from very based on where they're located and like the different regional tastes. And there's some times where the regional taste or the regional approach uh, loses sight of the fact of why certain things work. And oh, you want to violate? You want to have anarchy within this? Why? Are you an improviser who doesn't like to be told what to do? <laughs> okay. Yeah, we wouldn't want any of those. Yeah, we don't. We don't want any of that. But I think that's exactly what Keith would want. Mm -hmm. I think. And again, I don't want to speak for him, but 
I mean, all of this is under the umbrella, because uh, I know we're getting close to time's up, but all of this is under the umbrella of, like, I am an improviser, this is my life, and my goal in life is to be able to continue to grow and learn and experience as much different improv and impro as I can so that I could go anywhere in the world, even places where I don't even speak the language and be in service to the people who are on that stage with me. And if that's my personal mission statement, and so that means as a teacher, I'm my endeavor is to, to equip students with that same sensibility, but also with skill sets and really mindsets and, and awarenesses and caring so that they can do the exact same thing. Even if their goal is to get through this class so it can go to UCB in New York and then try to be a writer for Stephen Colbert. Um, I want people to be open to other ways of doing things while completely feeling permission to do the thing that they love and, and just do that if that's what they want to do. Part of me thinks all we can really do is help people get out of their own way, even if it's by telling them a game to do, an exercise to do, whatever. It's you're helping people be present in the moment so that they can see different things in the moment through their own eyes, through their own mind, their own hearts, and experience that moment for themselves. And even if you can give them the most helpful hints in the world, those hints have to go back into their subconscious so they can become part of their intuition in the moment that's hopefully in service of this moment, which could be, and at the same time is all a part of in service to me, in service to you, in service to the scene, the show, and the audience. And, you know, by default, the hopefully it's a little piece of art that happens in that time. Hey everybody, it's me again. So not only did I get to interview Joe Bill for this podcast, I also got to take two workshops with him at the Ocean State Improv Festival. So I figured I'd share with you some of the things I learned in that workshop, some of the great advice, quotes, etc. Alright, so in the podcast we talk about how one of the ways to differentiate the various schools of improv thought is based on this idea of whether their priority is to serve the art, to serve the audience, to serve your scene partner, or to serve yourself in order to serve your scene partner. So in the workshop, he framed this idea a little differently in a way that I thought was cool. And he says that there are three priorities, serving funny, serving story, or serving emotional honesty. And again, pointing out that uh, the good improv does all three of these, but that you have to start with one of these priorities or objectives. And so talking about the serving the story, so Joe has no problem with story, plot, or narrative improv, but he pointed out that one of the main pitfalls of narrative improv is that it tends to make the players overly focused on the circumstances. And he points out that circumstances do not define characters. They merely provide opportunities for characters to present themselves. Uh, so more on that, he says no scene should be resolved in the first half of the show, slash allow yourself to be emotionally unresolved in the first half of the show. All right, so regarding listening, it says listening is a willingness to be changed by your partner. He goes on to say that improvisers spend a lot of time moving objects around, but not a lot of time letting objects move them. When it comes to justifying characters' behavior, so we use the term justification a lot when we're talking about scene work, but Joe doesn't really like the word justification. He prefers the term contextualization. 
because he feels like justification implies that someone has made a mistake. So rather than justifying emotions or choices, it is our job to provide context for why that choice happens to be totally reasonable. Alright, so regarding characters just fighting on stage, I'm sure we've all had this experience. So to avoid pointless fighting between characters, tell yourself the following. The only reason that two characters ever fight in a scene is because they're in love. Of course, that's not actually true, but if you just tell yourself that and convince yourself of that, then even trivial fights are really about the relationship. I.e., they're really fighting because something else is wrong between the two. What is this fight really about? Why are we fighting about the fact that you burnt the dinner? We're not fighting because you burnt the dinner. We're fighting about some, some other problem that has to do with our actual relationship. Right? Uh, Joe also gave great advice talked about improvisers who are nervous or antsy, i.e. improvisers who pace, which is a personal problem of mine. So he starts off by posing the question, uh, when people on stage move their feet, ask yourself if it's the improviser or the character who's actually moving their feet. And if this is something you find yourself struggling with, Joe recommends choosing a strong emotional state, because this emotional state will serve as a replacement for your natural nervousness. Right, so the stronger the emotion that you're trying to portray, the less of your own natural nervousness will come across. Uh, some memorable quotes from the workshop. So this first one I think is kind of cool. When two improvisers talk over each other, it's an annoying proposition. However, when two characters talk over each other, it's a musical proposition. Another great quote, the definition of an improviser is one who does not know. And he uh, cites that quote of Martin DeMott, the famous artistic director of and teacher at Second City. Another great quote, the magic of improv is when the actor and the character become one. And lastly, you can only do the scene you're in, not the scene you want to be in. The real question is whether you can recognize that scene or that scene that you're actually in. All right, and last but not least, there are two ideas that Joe kept repeating over and over in both of the workshops that I got to take with him. First one, to know how you are is to know who you are. And the second one is, we project emotion to receive emotion. We receive emotion to be changed. And I know that's pretty heady, and honestly, it wasn't until I took that second workshop with him that I started to understand what he really meant by this idea that we project emotion to receive emotion and that we receive emotion to be changed. But we did a two-person exercise where both people closed their eyes, uh, we picked and embodied some emotion, and then we opened our eyes and looked at each other. So the emotion that I picked in this exercise was anxious, the emotion that my partner picked was super happy, and now because my partner's apparent response to me being anxious was to be super happy, my emotional state immediately evolved. It immediately evolved, evolved into terror. Because why would a person be so ecstatic to see me so worried? And so before either of us had even set a line, we both knew exactly what type of scene this was. Exactly what type of scene we were doing, which was a scene about murderous revenge. Alright, so those are some of my notes from uh, my Joe Bill workshop. And uh, rate and review this podcast. Thanks.